Right, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them open to Ephesians chapter 2. It seems like the last four or five times I've preached I've been in Ephesians, um, but we're going to go there again, but in chapter 2 this time. Uh, and this morning I felt led to preach about something going on in our country that I think needs to be addressed. And in the last month, it's kind of been overshadowed with Hurricane Harvey and Hurricane Irma now, uh, and for good reason. Uh, but, but the issue going on in our country is, is race. And it's been about a month now, almost the day since all the, the chaos in Charlottesville, Virginia. And it seems like the dust still hasn't settled. In fact, a month later, it seems like all the, the political and racial tension across our country continues to escalate rather than to subside. And I've, in preparation for the sermon, I've kind of been looking uh, online, but if you were to look at the major news outlets in our country, just look at their website, you'll, you'll find a story somewhere pertaining to race or some kind of political division, or just something related to, to that. Our country is as divided as it's ever been. Are, are you black or are you white? Or are you another race, Hispanic? Are you Asian? That's at the forefront of our minds now. Are you a Republican or are you a Democrat? Are you pro-Trump or are you anti-Trump? Are you a Fox News person? Are you an MSNBC person? Are you a CNN or some other news source person? It seems like every time we turn on the news, there's a new protest going on in our country, and all too often these peaceful protests escalate into violence. So my question today is, what do we do as the Church of Jesus Christ in our country how, how are we to think about this? How are we to respond to it? How, how are we to, to act in light of this? Now, before I begin, let me say a couple of things just to make sure we're, we're very clear. This is not intended to be a political sermon. So I hope it doesn't come across that way, but that's not what it's intended to be. My goal today is not to stand up here and speak for or against any certain political figure or, or policy or view. Nor is this intended to be a nationalistic sermon about if our country would just return to God, how we could be healed as a nation. It's not intended for, to be a political sermon, nor is it intended to be a nationalistic sermon for our country. But this sermon, I hope, intended to be a prophetic call to the church, to the redeemed children of God, to think, respond, and live in a certain way in the midst of a tense and divided culture. And I want to do that today by looking at a passage in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And you may be wondering, what does a letter written in the first century in the Roman Empire, halfway across the world, what does that have to do with us here in the United States today? What can this possibly say to us halfway across the world, in a, in a totally different cultural context. But I think once you look at this passage, you'll see that in this passage, God is speaking loudly and clearly to his church today. And I think you'll notice that there's a lot of overlap. 
Alright, so we're going to start in Ephesians 2, verse 11, and read through verse 18. It may say 22 on the, on the screen. I may stop at verse 18. But Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, uh, in this, Paul writes to the church in Ephesus these words. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that at, you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. All right, now we, before we begin to really jump into this passage, allow me to give you a little bit of context to help make sense of this passage. And so this was written in the first century, not long after the resurrection of Christ and, the, and the, really the official beginning of the Christian church. And when the church started in the first century, it started as essentially a Jewish movement. So Jesus was the Jewish Messiah that was promised all throughout the Old Testament. And because he was a Jewish Messiah, he came first and foremost to the Jewish people. When you read the Gospels, all of his disciples were Jews. And after his resurrection in the book of Acts, we see his Jewish disciples in Jerusalem preaching the Gospel primarily to Jews. So really, the first Christians, very early on, were nothing more than Jews who believed in Jesus as their Messiah, which he was and is their Messiah. And even though they believed in Jesus as their Messiah, they still retained much of their Jewishness, so to speak. They retained their sense of ethnic and cultural identity. They still thought of themselves as Jews. But when you read the book of Acts, it's not long before something starts happening. What started as a Jewish movement suddenly begins to branch out. And these Gentiles, or non-Jewish people, start believing in Jesus and receiving the Holy Spirit. And so all of a sudden, again, this, this what started as this Jewish movement of just, we're Jews who believe in Jesus as our Messiah, all of a sudden you get these non-Jewish people who start believing the gospel, having the Holy Spirit come upon them, and then enter into the church. So all of a sudden you have two very different ethnic groups with very different cultures, traditions, and physical backgrounds coming into the same place To worship. Historically, the Jews looked down on the Gentiles. They referred to the Gentiles as dogs, which at that time was a demeaning name. 
They thought of the Gentiles as being unclean and inferior. To the Jews, the Gentiles were those people out there. You know, like those people out there who we don't want any part with what we do in here. Like they're separate, they're out there. On the other side, you had the same things. The the Gentiles, the, the Jews were those people. Those people with their sense of superiority. Those people who excluded them and didn't allow them to have any part in what they did. So just imagine the tension when people from both of these groups all of a sudden began believing in Christ and showing up to the same place to worship. How are they to interact with each other? How are they to treat one another? How are they to worship together? Whose culture was going to win out? Whose traditions would win out? What if one group's practices offended the others? How, what should they do? And if you read the New Testament, much of it deals with tensions like these ones. And with questions like these, and with this tension in the early church, perhaps they would just be better off splitting into two separate churches. You know, the Jewish church and the Gentile church, they each kind of do their own thing and maintain their separate identities. It's into this setting, into this cultural context, that Paul wrote many of his letters, including this one to the Ephesians. And in this passage that we just read, you see Paul addressing this Jewish-Gentile tension head-on. So so look at this with me. Look at verse 11 with me. That's where we'll start. Verse 11, Paul writes, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called on circumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. So right here we see Paul highlighting right away the two, the two different ethnic groups and the differences between them. He starts by referring to the Gentiles as the Gentiles in the flesh. And what's interesting here when you look at the, the, the Greek when he says Gentiles in the flesh, the word translated Gentiles is actually the Greek word ethnos. That's where we get our word for ethnic and ethnicity. It refers to a group of people who are part of the same nation or a part of the same group, living according to the same culture. This is how the Jews referred to the Gentiles in the first century. They were the ethnos. They were that group of people of that culture, those people out there. Right, and they were the, the ethnos, that group of people in the flesh. They were, that's who they were to the Jews. Right, he then goes on, after addressing the Gentiles, to refer to the Jews by calling them the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. When he says circumcision, he's referring to the, the Jewish religious practice, of course, which is what the Jews used to set them apart or distinguish, distinguish between them and the Gentiles. And so he addresses both groups, and notice how he draws a physical distinction between both of them. He calls the Gentiles the Gentiles in the flesh, and he calls the Jews the circumcision made in the flesh by hands. So you can almost feel the kind of 
racial tone to what he's saying in this verse by highlighting their physical or ethnic differences between the two groups. And look what he goes on to say in verse 12. After drawing this distinction in verse 11, he then turns back to the Gentiles and tells them to remember a time in the past. Verse 12, he writes, Remember that you were at that time. So he's speaking of a former time, a time in the past, the way things used to be for the Gentile people. And what he says about their former condition, or the way things used to be with them, is that they were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now the key words in verse 12 are the words separated, alienated, and strangers. Your translation might say living apart or excluded or something similar. Whatever your translation says, notice the language of separation that he uses to refer to the Gentiles. Using these words of separation to describe the former condition of the Gentiles. That because of their ethnicity or their physical differences, they used to be characterized by this kind of separation. And what were they separated from? Basically, they were separated from all the benefits that the nation of Israel enjoyed as God's covenant people. So if you read back in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel, they were, they were God's covenant people. He chose them as his people through whom he would send the Messiah. And so his promises came first and foremost to the Jewish people. They had access to God because they were his covenant people. And because they had access to God, God was near to them. Now, this doesn't mean that the Jews in the Old Testament were automatically made right with God because they were part of ethnic Israel. They weren't. But it does mean that just because they were part of ethnic Israel, they had, they had immediate access to God. They were, he was near to them. They were near to him. And meanwhile, because the Gentiles were not part of ethnic Israel, they did not have immediate access to the promises of God. God was far from them. Which is why Paul says, you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth or the people of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise. So in other words, the, the ethnic differences between the Jews and the Gentiles that once separated them, they, they separated the Gentiles from all of the benefits that the Jewish people enjoyed. And the end result of that was that the Gentiles were without God in the world and had no hope. And I think about us in here today who at one time, just as Paul says, remember at that time you were separated from Christ separated from God's people, having no hope in the world. At one time, this was true of every single one of us in here. Whether or not we remember that time, this was true of us. 
that we were at one time separate from Christ, alienated from God's people, strangers to his covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So when he's describing their former condition in verse 12, he's really describing our former condition as well. I'm moving on. Look at verse 13. But now. Anytime you see the words but now or but God in scripture, stop and pay attention to what he's saying. It shows a significant change in the line of thinking or reasoning is taking place. So in verses 11 and 12, he's saying, this is who you were. This was true of your former condition. And then verse 13, he says, but now. So something changed. Something happened so that their former condition is no longer what it used to be. So what happened? What changed? Look at the rest of verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. What changed was that the Gentiles, who were once far off, separated from God and his people, have now been brought near by the blood of Christ. By the blood of Christ, those who were once far off, separated from God and his people, having no hope and without God in the world, have now been brought near by the blood of Christ. And again, the reality is is that Paul is speaking to us here today as well. That just like we were the Gentiles in, in verse 12 who were once far from God, separated from him and his people. Just as they in the first century have been brought near by the blood of Christ, so we in here today who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So just let that sentence fall on you now. Let verse 13 fall on you. That you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This is the good news of the gospel. Colossians 1, 21 to 22 says it this way. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach, before him. Through the gospel, we have been reconciled to God, restored to him, so that we now enjoy fellowship with him. Where there once was alienation and hostility between us and God, Christ has made peace by the blood of his cross. Think of it this way. It was on the cross where Christ took God's hostility towards our sin upon himself So that when Christ died on the cross, God's hostility towards us died along with him. So that where there once was hostility and separation and alienation, there is now peace between us and God. And if you're in here today and you have not trusted in Christ alone for your salvation and been reconciled to God, 
I would plead with you, make today the day of salvation. Turn from your sin and rebellion. Turn to Christ in faith. Be reconciled to God to once again know, enjoy, and glorify him now and forever. That this is the gospel. That we who once were far off have now been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now, this is the aspect of the gospel that we talk about most frequently, is it not? We're most, we, we talk about this all the time when we're most familiar with talking about the gospel in this way. And that's good, and we should. But there's more to the gospel th- than this. In fact, the gospel has been described as a, a multifaceted diamond with many different sides and angles. And depending on how you turn that diamond and look at it, you see new glimmers of light and different aspects of its beauty. And the more you turn that diamond around, you you see all these different angles, all this beauty, and you begin to appreciate the beauty of the whole thing. So some of you women now with diamond rings on, if you were to just take those now and just kind of do that, or maybe after you first got engaged, you're married, and you got that diamond ring, you walked outside and watched the sun reflect off of it in all those different ways, and you just wanted to shine it in everybody's eyes and show it off to everyone. This is what the gospel is like. And so as we read these next verses, 14 through 18, Just imagine that we're taking that gospel diamond and we're just turning it around in our fingers so that we can see its beauty from all angles. And as we see and appreciate its beauty from all these angles, we see the glory of God and the gospel all the more clearly. And we begin to see and appreciate his glory in the gospel even more. Right, so let's read verses 14 through 18 now and see this different aspect of the gospel and see God's glory in it. Right, starting in verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Now in those verses, take note of how he takes peace and contrasts it with hostility or division. Take note of how he takes unity or oneness and contrasts it with division and separation. At verse 14, he says, He himself, being Christ, is our peace, breaking down the wall of hostility. Verses 15 and 16. He has made peace between the two groups and has killed the hostility. Verse 17. He came and preached peace to those who were near and to those who were far off. Now, when Paul uses the word hostility in these verses, he's not only talking about the hostility that existed between us and God, but he's talking also about the hostility that existed between Jew and Gentile. 
And so where there used to be hostility and division between these two separate groups of Jew and Gentile, there is now peace. Why? Because Christ in his flesh on the cross has broken down the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. All the hostility, all the tension, all the hatred, all the division between these two separate ethnic groups has now been done away with by Christ so that he has united these two groups into one new group, or as it says, one new man. And so the main point we see in these verses is that Not only is the gospel the power of God unto reconciliation with him, but we also see that the gospel is the power of God unto reconciliation with each other. And in the first century, if the gospel can reconcile Jew and Gentile together into one new man, why can it not do the same for people of all races and ethnicities Today, The key phrase in these verses is the phrase, one new man. Because it summarizes the whole point that Paul is making in these verses. Where there used to be two separate groups, two, two ethnicities, two races, there is now one new group. There is one new ethnic group, one new race of people who are no longer defined by their physical differences in the flesh, but who are defined by the reality that they have been purchased and brought near by the blood of Christ. So there is now one new man, those who have been purchased and redeemed by the blood of Christ into this one body. Now, this does not mean that all ethnic or cultural differences are just out the window now. When I came to know Christ, I didn't cease to be white. Just like when you or anyone else came to know Christ, you didn't cease to be Hispanic or African-American, or whatever race or ethnicity you are. Right? The gospel does not destroy ethnic and cultural differences. It's not like it just blurs the lines, and just totally deletes all differences, and we're all just totally the same now. But it does transcend them. So that the most, most important or defining thing about us as believers in Christ, is not what ethnicity we are, but that we have been purchased and brought near to God by the blood of Christ. All throughout Scripture, you see, from the Old Testament to the New, God's plan all along was that the gospel would be for all nations. People of every tribe, nation, tongue, etc., that he would one day unite them back into one new man, reconciling them to himself and to each other. And the place where we see this illustrated most beautifully in Scripture is the passage we use for our call to worship today in Revelation 7. Turn there with me. It's, it's worth seeing for yourself. Revelation 
Revelation 7. The book of Revelation is the Apostle John, one of the disciples of Jesus, who was given a vision. And among the, the things he sees in this vision is a vision of the throne room of heaven in Revelation 7 here. And it's notable, when you look at this vision, what he sees in Revelation 7, his vision of heaven is this. Look at it now. Read verse 9 with me. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. When John is given this vision of the throne room in heaven, what he sees is not a a monochromatic crowd. There's no lack of diversity in, in his vision of heaven here. He sees a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, every people, every culture, every language that has ever existed or will ever exist. They are all represented before the throne of God here in Revelation 7. And what a vision this is of the church. Every tribe, tongue, nation represented before the throne worshiping. This was God's plan all along from the very beginning in Genesis to the very end in Revelation. And now jump down to verse 13 with me. In verse 13, it says, One of the elders addressed me, that is John, And he's saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? So this elder asks John, he says, who are these people? You see this great multitude here from every tribe, nation, tongue, and people. Who are these people and where have they come from? And I I love what John says in verse 14. He said, I said to him, sir, you know. It's like, John's like, I don't know the answer. Uh, Why don't you tell me? You're the one who's... Here, I'm just just getting this vision. And look at the elder's response in verse 14. He said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. What's interesting is what the elder doesn't say to John. When John asks, Sir, you know where these people come from? Who are they? The elder doesn't say, uh, so what you've got here is the, um, these are the white people over here, and these are the, uh, here are the Europeans, here are the Pacific Islanders, over there are the South Americans. Right? That's not what he does. But what does he say about them? How is it that the elder defines this people? He says, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. These people are still recognizable according to their 
ethnic and cultural identities. We know that because in verse 9, John looks at them, he's able to recognize that they're from every tribe, nation, tongue. He doesn't say, I looked out and just beheld a great mob of people, but he, he recognizes, he can see there are these cultural and ethnic differences among these people. But that's not the ultimate thing that defines them. When the elder asks who these people are and how they are defined, how he defines them is that these are the ones who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They are ultimately defined by the transcendent reality that they have been washed by the blood of the Lamb. The gospel does not destroy our ethnic and cultural identities, but it does transcend them. These people in Revelation 7 have been redeemed and reconciled to God from every tribe, nation, people, and tongue, and they have been reconciled to one another in one new man. Where there used to be hostility between them and God, there is now peace. And where there used to be hostility among themselves, there is now peace. And church, this, this vision in Revelation 7 is a picture of the one new man that Paul was talking about back in Ephesians 2. And it's a picture of what the church is to be here and now. We are to be a diverse people from every ethnicity, every culture, every race, every language, every socioeconomic class who are united into one body by the transcendent reality that we have been washed by the blood of the Lamb and we have been reconciled to God in one body and one spirit. We are to be a living, breathing testimony to the beauty and power of the gospel to reconcile us to God and to one another so that the glory of God would shine through the church to a watching world. So this vision in Revelation 7 is a vision of what the church is to be here and now. Before I started, I told you, uh, that this was not meant to be a political sermon, nor was it meant to be a, a nationalistic sermon, but that this was meant to be a, a prophetic call to the church to think, respond, and live in a certain way in the midst of a tense and divided culture. And, and so in light of all that God has shown us in Ephesians 2 and Revelation 7, how are we to then live? How are we to respond how, in, in this, this tense and divided culture? A couple points, I think, here. First things first, let me say this. By no means do I claim to have all the answers. I spent my entire life in predominantly white rural areas in northwest Ohio and northern Indiana. So of all people, I certainly don't have all the answers. So I hope it doesn't come across that way. But I do think that in Scripture, God gives us some definitive direction. And he gives us a, a very clear vision of how we are to think, respond, and live when it comes to, to race and, and racial division and tension. And so, so what do I think God's word is very clear on when it comes to this? 
One, first things first, we must call racism what it is. That is sin. And it is. Racism is it's a grievous sin that belittles the image of God in human beings, and it belittles the gospel by failing to recognize that Christ came for every tribe, nation, tongue, and people. So we must not beat around the bush when we're talking about racism. We must call it for what it is. That is sin. Number two, because racism is a sin, we must search ourselves for any hint of racism. And we must put it to death, just as we're called to put any other sin to death. Maybe it's time to confess before God that that deep down we all have the the seeds of, of hatred in us. And that that deep down we truly believe the gospel is really only for people who look like us and act like us and are part of the same socioeconomic class as us. So we must search ourselves and recognize any hint of racism or divisiveness in us and we must put it to death. Number three, because racism is sin, we must speak out against it. If you look back at the civil rights movement in the the 60s, the church, much of them just stood idly by and and did nothing. But instead of standing idly by, we must stand up and proclaim that the image of God is in every man and that the gospel knows no racial or ethnic boundaries, but that God is reconciling all people to himself in one new man. And we must especially speak out when racism or any kind of racial supremacy is attached to the name of Christ and is being done in the name of Christ. To claim racial superiority on the basis of Scripture is a special offense to God and a special offense against the gospel. And we must stand against it. We must correct brothers and sisters in Christ when necessary. All right, number four, as a church, we must be willing to set aside our cultural and ethnic preferences in order to make this in Ephesians 2 and in Revelation 7 church. All right, and so I ask, knowing fully well that we are in Northwest Ohio, not exactly a very diverse area, but are, are we as a church willing to set aside some of our, our cultural preferences? in order to be more accommodating to people of other cultures or ethnicities for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of Christ? Are we willing to set our preferences aside? Fifth, we must humbly and sensitively enter into the fray of this divided world armed with the gospel. We must be humble and sensitive when it comes to racial issues. We must not be presumptuous or arrogant, but we must be teachable, willing to empathize with others and learning while admitting that we don't have all the answers. And we must be armed with the gospel, going out knowing that the gospel alone has the power to reconcile us to God, knowing that the gospel alone has the power to transform the racist heart, knowing that the gospel alone has the power to reconcile us to one another. 
So we must boldly proclaim that in Christ alone there is reconciliation to God and reconciliation to one another. That he has torn down the dividing wall of hostility and created one new man in the place of two. And as it says in Revelation 7, we must boldly invite people to wash their robes and make them clean in the blood of the Lamb. And worship team, you can go ahead and come forward as we close. And lastly, last point of how, how we need to think, respond, and live in the midst of this is we must maintain this vision that Paul gives us in Ephesians 2, that John gives us in Revelation 7. We must keep this vision at the forefront of our minds. We must work for that now, while also looking forward to the day when Christ comes and consummates his kingdom and makes this Revelation 7 church a reality once and for all. And so we work for it here and now. We strive for this kind of Revelation 7 church while also knowing that it won't be until Christ comes that he will destroy every hint of sin and evil, when he will bring perfect justice to all, when he will wipe away every tear from our eyes, and when he will finally, once and for all, reconcile us completely to himself and reconcile us completely and fully to one another in one new man. So we must keep this vision in front of us now, working for it in this world, but also knowing and putting our hope in the fact that when Christ comes, this will be a reality once and for all. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you that he has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility between us and you and the dividing wall of hostility between us and our brothers and sisters in Christ in this world. Father, we ask that you would give us wisdom and teachability and and humility as we try to learn and and as we try uh, the best we can to grow and develop in Ephesians 2 and in a Revelation 7 church. God, we confess before you any hint of racism or sin that is in us, and we ask that you would cleanse us by the blood of Christ, that we might walk in newness, help us to be restored to peace with you and to one another. God, send us out into this world armed with the gospel. Help us to maintain this vision of the church in this life. Help us to strive for this here and now. And help us to keep our sights set on Christ's coming when he will finally make this a reality once and for all. So, Father, until that day, we put all our hope and trust in you. We pray that your spirit would enable us to live in peace with one another. And we pray that through this church and our peace and love for one another, that you would shine your glory to a watching world. Do this, Father, for the glory of your name. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.